Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, offering online master's degrees in elementary education, higher education, and early childhood education. Your master's degree can be earned online in as little as one to two years. More information at education.olemiss.edu. Good morning. It's 830. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the head of the State School Superintendents Association speaks out about possible changes to how public schools are funded. We're hurting across the state of Mississippi for good uh, certified teachers going into the teacher education program. So if we can encourage their participation in teacher education, then we put a quality teacher in the classroom, and that's the number one determining factor of the student's success. Then Tupelo continues to deal with the fallout of a June incident where a white police officer killed an unarmed black man. Later, a StoryCorps conversation from Mississippi on raising a transracial family in the South, and a new report on the high cost of being poor in Mississippi. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The State Association of School Superintendents is supporting the effort to rework Mississippi's education funding formula. Republican legislative leaders are asking an out-of-state third party to examine the Mississippi Adequate Education Program, or MAEP, and recommend changes ahead of the 2017 legislative session. Sam Bounds is the director of the Mississippi Association of School Superintendents. He tells MPB's Paul Boger the organization is in favor of any attempt to put more money in the classroom, specifically for teacher salaries. I listened intensely at the uh, press conference that uh, Lieutenant Governor Reeves and uh, Speaker Gunn had, and when they talked about improving the MAEP formula, and they talked about getting more money into the teacher's pocket and more money into the classroom, it kind of went along with our 2017 Mass Legislative Agenda. When we adopted, or when uh, the board adopted the Mass Legislative Agenda, our number one, number one uh, priority, of course, our over overreaching direction is to improve student achievement. But our number one priority was recruit and retain quality teachers. And I think that that goes right along with recruiting and retaining quality teachers. We are, we are hurting across the state of Mississippi for good uh, certified teachers going into the teacher education program. So if we can encourage their participation in teacher education, then we put a quality teacher in the classroom. And that's the number one determining factor of the student's success. 
So that went along with what we were looking uh, to as a as a priority for the association. And then the other thing that the board adopted is it says Mass advocates for and supports the legislature in establishing a method to fund schools in a fair and equitable way that incorporates state and local funds. And Mass always supports financial accountability for each district. So with the legislative agenda established for 2017 by the Superintendent's Association, we felt that what Lieutenant Governor and Speaker Gunn were saying went right along with our initiative. So we we endorse them looking and you know they said improve MAEP. Uh, no no time did I hear that they say they were going to throw it out, they were going to junk it, uh, that they were going to improve MAEP. And it is 20 years old, so anything that's 20 years old probably needs to be looked at. Uh, I told a, a group last week that some of us still drive a 20 year old vehicle, but not not many of us. So there is there is a, a potential to look at it and to improve it. So therefore we we endorse that. You mentioned teacher pay um, as one of the aspects you would like to see uh, improved. What are some other aspects? What are some other things that you think MAEP should be addressing that maybe it's not doing right now? Well, uh, one thing that I would love to see the consultant firm look at is to get a clearly defined and clearly delineated uh, explanation of what administrative cost is. That way we can have it uniform throughout the state. So we have 144 districts actually listing what their administrative cost is as directed by uh, the formula and as directed by the definition. The other thing that we could do is, as they say, put more money in the classroom. And putting more money in the classroom actually goes along with what we always said. Our underlying number one perspective is including uh, improving student achievement. So we, we think those two things can actually help define what we are doing in our district. You know, you hit the nail on the head right there. During all of this, during their announcement, the thing that we heard over and over again was too much money is being spent on administration, too little money is hitting the classroom, getting into the classroom. Do you think that that is a fair assessment? You know, why why is there this belief that administrative costs are, are a bad thing? Well, so many things have been added over the last 20 years. Uh, that causes these districts to add on. As as an example, reading specialists, uh, reading coordinators, uh, uh, technology specialists, uh, technology, co- technology coordinators, all of these are programs that, that have been added on that we have no pl- place to put them except in the administrative costs. That's the reason I, I would say, and it's all over the board, there's no definition of what goes into administrative cost. So I, I would think, and, and a lot of things is mandated by law. I mean, we have to have a principal in every school. Uh, and if if your enrollment goes uh, over a certain number, you have to have an assistant principal and sometimes two assistant principals. So those are mandated by law. So we think that if we can have a clearly defined, uh, clearly delineated what goes into administrative costs, then you have 144 districts listing that. And then you can create categories for these things that's been added on by law that not, not necessarily falls into administrative costs. So I, I think once that is defined and once we can list it, across the board at 144, I think it would be eye-opening to see exactly what uh, what districts spend on administrative costs. Now, I, I'm not saying out of 144 that, you know, it's kind of like those saying there may be a, a couple of rotten a- apples in every barrel. But once that's defined, then we can actually identify it, and then we can attack it as a uniform problem and not, as some districts do, listing things that's been added on into administrative costs. 
MPB's Paul Boger with Sam Bounds. He's the director of the Mississippi Association of School Superintendents, which favors the legislative attempt to rework how the state funds public schools. Up next, Tupelo continues to deal with the fallout of a June incident where a white police officer killed an unarmed black man. We'll have the latest. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts of your favorite MPB Think Radio programs are available now. With any podcast app, you can search, subscribe, and never miss a second of MPB Think Radio. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. Hi, I'm Sharita Brent. On In Legal Terms, the focus is always you and your rights. From Miranda rights to civil rights, our legal experts will inform you of your right to do or not to do according to the law. Join us Tuesday mornings at 10 for In Legal Terms on MPV Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Community advocates in Tupelo are calling on city leaders to address concerns in the wake of the killing of an unarmed black man by a white police officer. Antoine Ronnie Ronnie Shumpert was killed by Tupelo police officer Tyler Cook in June. Cook was not indicted in the killing. City leaders have appointed working groups to address some areas concern for citizens, such as community policing and establishing a citizen review panel. Reverend James Hull says his group is looking for a few more seats at the table. We're not unsupportive now, but we see some glitches. Uh, we see some um, some problems in these groups, and we think that this is a good time to speak out now before those groups actually report out so that we may be able to, to make some changes before everything is set in stone. Before we get to your concerns, let me ask you why there are six groups. Are they all uh, discussing different things, different focus? Yeah, those six groups actually are are a reflection of six basic concerns that the citizens have had and the city is trying to address, uh, to put it very very, uh, simply. They reflect not only some issues with the police department, which the uh, community-oriented policing working group is addressing, and our demand for a citizens review board, which they are addressing, but also some other issues like hiring and training inside the city, uh, how the faith-based community can actually pay a part in in reconciling the community and the city, uh, whether or not there should be a professional uh, who is actually on board that can liaison between the community and uh you know and and uh and the city, so those six groups actually have boiled down to six major concerns that seem to come up between the city and uh the citizens at large. What's happened since your initial enthusiasm to now that you have concerns about this? The working groups have met first of all uh secondly, we have some idea of what some of those reporting out is going to do just based on some uh, news reports. I sit on one of those uh, working groups, so I know for a fact that, um, you know, that that, uh, there are some issues there. The most important thing is this, Karen. When those groups were first formed and we uh, responded to the formation of the groups, 
we had two caveats. Caveat number one was it really depends on the constitution of the groups. And caveat number two is it really depends on what the outcomes are going to be. Well, I can tell you that the, the groups, the way they're constituted, they are very heavily weighted towards city employees. So that really doesn't lend itself to any independent thinking as much as it should. We also know that our recommendation for a citizen's review board has now been so watered down, it's going to be called a police advisory. Uh, actually, to the point where whatever this entity or agency or quasi-agency is going to be, it will actually be attached to the Tupelo Police Department. Well, that's not going to do anybody any good. There's no autonomy there. There's no independence there. So, you know, just from the fact that those groups have actually been constituted now, that they are actually meeting now, uh, we have a pretty good idea of where this could be headed if we don't speak out. Now. This action was taken by the mayor uh, in response, as I understand, of the shooting death, the fatal shooting death of a poli- uh, by a police officer of Antoine Schumpert. Mm-hmm. Is that specific incident being addressed by one of these groups? No. And I can tell you just from discernment, the reason that it probably isn't is because there's a pending lawsuit. So as you well know, when lawsuits are pending, people get real closed mouth about what they're going to say for fear that they may something that could influence their side of the case. Reverend James Hall is a member of the Coalition of Concerned Pastors and Leaders. Reverend Hall, thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Karen. Tupelo officials have said they're making an honest effort to bridge gaps between the community and law enforcement. Up next, a StoryCorps conversation from Mississippi on raising a transracial family in the South. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Fact check the candidates during the final presidential debate Wednesday night starting at 8 o'clock. For live up-to-the-minute fact-checking from NPR, go to mpbonline.org. Wendy Schenefeld is multiracial. Her parents, who adopted her as an infant, are white. In this visit on the StoryCorps mobile tour in Mississippi, Wendy and her mother, Dari Schenefeld, talk about why her parents chose to create a transracial family. How did you and Daddy decide to come to the decision to adopt transracially? Well, first of all, your father had accepted a job as an assistant professor of research in pediatrics at the Cincinnati Children's Home. I mean, excuse me, the Cincinnati Children's Hospital. Mm -hmm. And we moved into a racially mixed neighborhood by choice. And we wanted to adopt a little, a sister for our two little boys. So we applied to the children's home in Cincinnati, and we asked to adopt a black or biracial girl because we knew at that time many of these babies were having trouble finding homes. Mm -hmm. And also, we hadn't actively participated in in what was going on in the South because we were Mm -hmm. living in the North and busy with our personal lives. And we thought, well, this is a way of supporting racial integration. Mm -hmm. I can remember talking to Daddy about that as well, is that it was a way to, not to say a social experiment, but that that the way to true integration and and equality in this country 
can come from, hopefully, from living together in one house as brother and sister. And so growing up in that house with people that don't necessarily look alike, but we loved each other um, all the same, and we just grew up as family, and we just never knew any difference. So did you talk to any of your family before you got started with this uh, crazy Transracial adoption thing? I mean, were uh, well, they supportive? we had to because the adoption agency required us to do that. Mm-hmm. And when we wrote to your, your daddy's parents, uh, we knew there would be no problem. And your grandfather, Roy, said in these words, you need to have no qualms about being rejected by us, whichever way you go. Mm-hmm. And your grandmother, Florence, wrote back, Ray, whatever child you and Dari choose will be loved by us. And we really appreciated that. Now, my parents <laughs> were, well, my mother was kind of shy and quiet, mm-hmm. and I thought she probably really did approve, but she was a little concerned that we might have problems. My father thought it wasn't a good idea, but at least he didn't try to interfere in any way. And then we had a lot of support from our neighbors because we lived in a mixed neighborhood. Right. And we also attended the Unitarian Church, and the the church members were very supportive Mm -hmm. of our decision. Mm -hmm. And despite your father's concerns, when we arrived, he never treated us any differently. He was always the stern grandfather that that he was, but it didn't have anything to do with what we looked like. It was that we were noisy kids who descended upon his house and and turned his house upside down when we came to visit. But he never treated us any differently, and I always appreciated that. So so what about the... This, the state agency, the children's home where you applied, were they supportive of adopting transracially or did they try to say, no, this probably isn't the best idea? Well, they hadn't ever done it before. <laughs> and so they had a, a big staff meetings and they talked it over and some of them were sure about it. But finally, they decided they'd go ahead and honor our request. Mm-hmm. So then we adopted your your sister, Heidi, in May of 1970. And two years later, we adopted you in April of 1972. You were six months old. And our neighbor, who was, happened to be African-American, called you the girl with a million-dollar smile. And the woman who had been your foster mother before you were place, placed with us called you Princess because there was a Cherokee chief in your family. Supposedly. Supposedly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I, You know, growing up and having that label of being triracial, I think that was always fun to, to imagine that one of my ancestors had been a Cherokee chief. To hear more of our conversations from the StoryCorps mobile tour, go to mpbonline.org. The StoryCorps mobile tour visited Mississippi through a partnership with the Mississippi Humanities Council, the MPB Foundation, and Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Fact check the candidates during the final presidential debate Wednesday night starting at 8 o'clock. For live up-to-the-minute fact-checking from NPR, go to mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. 
In Mississippi, 22% of residents remain in poverty and nearly 638,000 lives below the poverty line and face high costs of living in rent, food, and child care. This is even though nationwide recent data have shown reductions in the poverty rate and increases in household median income. That's the finding of the high cost of being poor in Mississippi, a new report released by the Children's Defense Fund and its southern region off, regional office, the Mississippi Low Income Child Care Initiative and the Coalition on Human Needs. We spoke with Carol Burnett, executive director of the initiative. She says there are programs to help impoverished Mississippians. It's really looking at two things. The first is that poor people pay more for items such as housing and groceries and credit because with uh, typically a poor credit score, the cost of borrowing or, you know, the cost of doing business with the payday lender, for example, cost a lot more. Groceries are typically more expensive at the convenience store kinds of grocery stores in poor communities where the quality of food is even lower. So, the costs of items are more for people who are poor. And then the other problem is that for the programs that are out there to benefit poor people that make a hugely positive impact on lowering the cost of things for poor people, those programs are fabulous, like subsidized child care, for example, subsidized housing. But the reach of those programs is so limited that the majority of people who qualify don't benefit from those assistance programs and where they don't benefit, the cost of having to pay takes a bigger bite out of a poor person's family income than out of a family income of a a middle income family. I want to interrupt for a second and go back to the, that food costs more and that because at convenience stores, it's more expensive and not good quality. Why are people shopping at convenience stores for groceries? Well, the if you look at poor neighborhoods, they're typically called what is referred to these days as a food desert, which means that the only stores that are located in close proximity in poor neighborhoods are frequently convenience stores um, rather than large grocery stores where you can get good produce or where you can get uh, grocery items at a lower price. Um, and poor people tend to have limited transportation so that when they can't get a car to drive to, you know, the local uh, Winn-Dixie or to the local Kroger or something, and what they have to do is go to the corner store instead, what they find is uh, limited options that are, generally speaking, less healthy and also more expensive. Gotcha. Now, because Mississippi is at the top of the list or the bottom of the list, depending on how you look at it, once again, for poverty, what has to happen? What's not happening to change those statistics? What's not happening to improve the poverty rate in Mississippi are essentially two things. One is wages that Mississippians tend to earn are still quite low. So wages and wages for jobs that come with benefits If those were improved, that would help to reduce the poverty rate in Mississippi. And then secondly, 
many of the programs that alleviate the brunt of poverty, like subsidized child care or subsidized housing or expanding Medicaid so that low-income working people can get health insurance, those are policies that would really improve things for people who are currently poor but could rise above poverty with the benefit of these work support programs that have demonstrated in cases where families have actually gotten child care or gotten health care that the benefit of getting those supports helps lift them above the poverty rate and wages that are living wages or wages that come, you know, jobs that come with the benefits package those um, benefits for employees, those are the two strategies for overcoming poverty, earning more uh, and getting work support. The report is called The High Cost of Being Poor in Mississippi. We've been, see- right. we've been speaking with Carol Burnett, who's CEO of Mississippi Low Income Child Care Initiative. Carol, thank you very much. Sure. Thanks for uh, the opportunity. Coming up after Mississippi Edition, it's Money Talks in Legal Terms and Southern Remedy. And remember, if you want to catch the show outside the broadcast, just search for Mississippi Edition in your favorite podcasting app and listen whenever you like. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi Edition, only on MPB Think Radio. Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, offering online master's degrees in elementary education, higher education, and early childhood education. Your master's degree can be earned online in as little as one to two years. More information at education.olemiss.edu. It's Marketplace.